Sci-Fi for Me Radio presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is H2O. It's time. Oh yes. It's time. We've been we've been wanting to do this for a while now. Yes. And we're finally here. Welcome everyone. This episode of H2O. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. And tonight, this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening to it. We deliver a fisking. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, fisking is basically where uh, somebody has made a statement or written an article or some some premise that's out there put forth into the universe. And the fisking is when someone completely rips it to shreds, yeah. which is what we're going to do tonight. To the New Yorker magazine. Now, let's be perfectly clear here. Um, when it comes to reviewing anything, okay, because this is this involves the review for Rogue One. Yes, this is Richard Brody's article. And as a reviewer, and certainly we have served the roles of reviewers before, right? Um, and it is perfectly okay to not like something. Yes. Yes. I mean, every, everything is a matter of taste, and, and it's personal taste. You don't have to. I, I, this is going to sound like a very strange thing to say, but it's okay to not like the Star Wars movies. What? It's okay. You don't have to like the Star Wars movies. You don't have to like Star Wars or Star Trek or Doctor Who or any other of the big, exciting science fiction franchises that are that are the big things. Wherever it is, you don't have to like Buckaroo Banzai or RoboCop, Blake or Seven, Blake Seven, or Ro- or or you don't have to like Blade Runner, Red Dwarf. You don't have to like any of the things. Right? It's right. okay. It's perfectly fine. You're allowed to not like something. Okay. Do not misunderstand. It's perfect. If if Richard Brody had written a review where he said, this is why I don't like the movie, <laughs> it would be different than what we have here. That's right. The title of the, uh, the, head, the headline of the article, this is in The New Yorker, December 13th, 2016. Rogue One reviewed, is it time to abandon the Star Wars franchise? Now, right from the get-go, his premise is automatically telling you where he's coming from. Now, even even with the acknowledgement here that a lot of times people who write their articles are not writing their headlines. A lot of times for for a large a lot of the the internet based stuff, a lot if you've got an editor who is ha- you know there's somebody who is writing headlines. That's their right. gig. Right. I've done I've done it to sure. several people here where they'll get an article and I'll tweak the yeah. Headline. And you know some people are just not good at writing headlines. Right. Um, that said. You don't generally come up with a headline like that unless you want to accomplish two things. One, you want to sum up what the article is about, in which case, okay, or you want clickbait. Because that's very much, a, no, you know, that's Well, a, th- there's a third option. Yeah. You're doing it to deliberately antagonize the fan base. Which I think still falls under clickbait, though. Yeah. So, and and no offense to the wonderful world of clickbait out there, but... Wait no, yeah, that sentence doesn't work. Um, <laughs> that resolution we we did we did what six New Year's resolutions in yeah. 2016. <laughs> yeah, and one of them was no clickbait headlines, and I think we've done pretty well with that. We have, and all of those six resolutions from last year still hold for this year. Yeah, just so we're, just so we're clear. I mean, there's there is something to be said for getting okay. The thing about clickbait 
is that the idea is to get someone's attention, all right? Mm. There's there's so many different ways that you can get whatever it is you're trying to say lost in the 40 bazillion voices of the internet. Right. Clickbait, on one level, is a completely understandable way to get somebody's eyes on your article. Yes, but However, it's, also, <laughs> it's also waving a red flag in front <laughs> exactly. of a bull. Exactly. You know, and anytime you see the word um, destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> Or, you'll never believe. Or you'll never believe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Guess what? You probably will believe that. I, uh-huh. I apparently believe a lot of things because I, I tell you. But yeah, it, it's funny too that, that you know it continues here underneath the underneath that headline. Mm-hmm. There's a photograph of Cassie Nandor and Jen Urso and K2SO from the movie. Right. The caption, and we haven't even gotten into the review yet, but the caption. Constrained by a flat and inexpressive script, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, lets neither its characters nor even its special effects come to life. Now, that's pretty tame. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's pretty and, straightforward. And, it's and, opinion. Yeah, and you're, you oh, again, that's not necessarily, you can, you can make an argument for that. Before we started recording, we were discussing the fact that it's, if you are a skilled Debater, you can make an argument for a lot of things, whether you believe them or not, or they're important or not, right? So, okay, so far we have a terrible headline um, because oh, and we'll, we'll talk about why. Uh, no, let's talk about why it's a terrible headline right now. Okay, uh, because this is the film. This is we had the first three Star Wars films, which are cultural touchstones for a significant chunk of America. It seems right. well, based on and the world and the world, but I mean, you know, it's almost an American institution. Star Wars is a is, I mean, just you and I more than once talked about that little catch in the throat we got mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. the Force Awakens trailer came out and the yes. Millennium Falcon flies up into the sky. We're like, eh, eh. Yes. feels. I have feels. <laughs> My cold, shriveled heart starts to beat again. Yeah, it's it's you know, but so. And the, but then there were the prequels, and the prequels kind of shriveled up your heart. A little tri- bit. Yeah. yeah, suddenly you're the Grinch again, and and so this is the point. This is where it's time to abandon the Star Wars franchise, right? Okay, so all right, yeah. sure, sure, sure. All right, so you've got that that rather clickbaity headline. Yeah, you have a rather bland caption under the photograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Sure, okay. and then. <laughs> <clears throat> And I quote. <laughs> and I quote. Stink, stank, stunk. No way. That's not what he says. No. <laughs> but it, it could, might as well. <clears throat> this is Richard Brody in the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. Lobotomized and depersonalized. Rogue One, a Star Wars story, the latest entry in the film franchise, is a pure and perfect product that makes last year's flavor, Star Wars The Force Awakens, feel like an exemplar of hands-on humanistic warmth and dramatic intimacy. That's one sentence. Yeah. That is the lead sentence. That is the lead sentence. Of the review from Mm -hmm. Richard Brody in The New Yorker. I don't think he likes it. <laughs> I don't think he does either. It's a certain sense you get that perhaps he did not enjoy the picture in the way that perhaps the people who produced it would have Lobotomized and depersonalized. Uh, now, uh, lest, lest people think we are not... Here, here's, here's the thing about critics, right? Um, criticism is sometimes a very, very difficult job. Mm. And there is a wide range of quality of critic across the, the media landscape. And 
there are certainly critics who are very accessible, some who are particularly, I mean, the reading of, you know, they, they throw enough at you, it's a very dense reading. It's hard to get through a review sometimes for some folks because they've just thrown so much stuff in there. Right. You can, and I, I there are critics that I review, that, or critics that I read, who I don't agree with, but I like their reviews. Sure. And there are critics that I, you know, agree with that I'm like, this is a terrible review, but I, I agree with your <laughs> point. Um. And you then you have critics where it's like, did you watch the movie and did you understand what the movie is about? Yeah. And this is, when, with with all due respect to uh, Richard Brody, with all due respect to him, what movie did you watch <laughs> and what were you expecting to go in for? I, you know, what are see, your expectations gotta, of this film? I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta wonder. <clears throat> okay, so. Quoting, quoting from the review, this is still in the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. The director of Rogue One, Gareth Edwards, has stepped into a mythopoetic stew so half-baked and overcooked, a morass of pre-instantly overanalyzed implications of such shuddering impact to the series fundamentalists that he lumbers through, seemingly stunned or constrained or cautious to the vanishing point of passivity, and lets neither the characters nor the formidable cast of actors nor even the special effects, of which he has previously proved himself to be a master come anywhere close to life that's one sentence that is a run-on sentence by the that way is a terrible um, somewhere his sentence. his high school english teacher <laughs> is probably uh, uh having a coronary if they have an already rolling over in their grave okay can you okay now now leslie walker one of our one of our editors yeah. here loves to uh, diagram sentences. Oh, no. <laughs> I would love to send the steward say, have at it. Um, okay, so... Because this is a mess. For those of you who, who may not have seen Rogue One, <laughs> uh, there are... Maybe three of you. And again, you know, you don't, if Star Wars is not your thing, maybe you didn't see Rogue One, okay? And you may not understand what the, what the deal is here. If, we, if you're not... If, if somehow you're one of the people who managed to listen to Jason and I talk about Star Wars over the last few years... Um, and and not understand what this film is about. This is a war movie. This yeah. is a 1950s, 1960s... If this film was made in the 1950s, you would cast uh, Gable and, and, and Bogart and maybe Ronald Reagan and it'd be it'd be one of the it'd be one of those films where it'd be the it'd be the stock characters of Hollywood mm. and they die off one by one right because it's a war movie right right and the only reason you would uh, recognize some of these people is because that's how you get them into the theater right but, but you you would know going in because it'd be a yeah. world war 1 2 picture and yeah. this would be how they would all die right well the dirty dozen exactly it's that's that's what this is this is the dirty dozen in space. And in the mythopoetic stew that is Star Wars. <laughs> by the way, folks, the definition of mythopoetic is actually of or relating to the making of a myth or myths. Otherwise known as uh, <sighs> mythopoetic. I mean, mythopoetic. okay. So, so basically the premise here is that in the first Star Wars film, we are, no, we are informed that the rebels got the plans for the Death Star um, from a group of people who did not survive getting the plans. Well, now, it doesn't say in the crawl that they didn't survive. It just says rebel spies stole the plans. But many, know, may, you know, striking may, from a secret base. Many Bothans you know, died. 
That was Jedi. I, 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 yes. But still. Um, you know, the, 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 the premise here is that, you know, you don't see any of these characters, these great spies. Ever, you know, they're, not, they're not part of the, the larger right. story. Yeah, they're not so, introduced ever again. And anytime you do a prequel where you, none of the characters who are in the prequel show up in the later films, there's a certain set of expectations you can probably go in with. Not to mention, if you watched the trailers <laughs> for this film, it was pretty clear from go that this is a doomed mission. We know it succeeds. Yeah. Because... It's part of the backstory of, the, but this is this is one of the stories of Star Wars that had not been told. Well, and Ka- Kathleen Kennedy even had said in an interview, in several interviews, this is a one and done. There is mm-hmm. no Rogue Two or right. anything like that because the sequel to Rogue One is Star Wars. Is Star Wars? Yeah. No bloody Episode Four, New <laughs> Hope, Special Edition, any of that crap. Star Wars. So. We have a mythopoetic stew that is so half-baked and overcooked, <laughs> a morass of pre-instantly over-analyzed implications of such shuddering impact of the series, series fundamentalists. Okay. Series fundament. Okay. The word fundamentalist means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but in the case of a sentence like this, what you're really saying is... Um, the hyper-fans. The hyper-fans. Yeah, the folks who are the, the, the true... The folks who actually argue with Star Trek fans about which franchise is better. Um, the people who know that Bast Castle was part of uh, Ralph McQuarrie's original design concepts for The Empire Strikes Back. So when it shows up in this movie, everybody goes, <laughs> exactly. That's right. a castle. Right. That's a castle. And if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, I did that, by the way. <laughs> That's a castle. That's a castle. It's McQuarrie's castle. Did the rest of the audience just lean over and go, shut up. <laughs> no. Um, so the problem with sentence like this is that it assumes, I don't know, there's, there's something wrong with, there's something wrong with the mindset here. And, and well, he's basically saying that, that, that the, for what my reading is the, the story, the whole, the whole production of this film is, is overly concerned with the hyper fan what are they going to think to the point where it 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 constrains whatever it is that they were trying to do except, there's there's the impact yeah but except that that in expectations except we've seen that before oh sure we have but this is star wars in the sense you know when it comes to something like star wars the stories are not complicated this is not there's it's a, there's a certain simple through line through all of these stories when you're talking Star Wars, um, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. You we, once you start throwing the politics of the prequels in, and that really was where for a lot of people, a lot of fans of the of the films really were upset with the prequels was because they spent so much time dealing with politics, which while George Lucas really does enjoy politics, I do too. Yeah. But you know what I don't when I don't ever feel the desire to write about politics. Yeah. Well, and ironically, and we can get we'll get to this a little bit later on in this, but ironically, it's those very same prequels and the politics of same that mm-hmm. Mr. Brody really 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 likes. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. Yeah. Um there's there's a there's a certain there's a certain disconnect here between this reviewer and the content he's watching. Yeah, 
he's really failing to see that this really is the kind of movie that it is. He says later on in the review, excuse me, there is a story to Rogue One, Mm -hmm. one that I overheard a viewer or two describe as dark on the way out, and I suppose that despite the inevitable happy ending or at least successful mission, some serious unpleasantness occurs along the way, mainly the death of some major characters. Okay, so one, he gives a spoiler. Two, he sits there and goes... Uh, you know, so, somebody said it was dark, and I suppose it is. Did you not? Wait, wait it's a war movie. <laughs> but it's a sign of the narrow constraints or limits of Edward's artistry or of the script that he was handed that the scenes in which such unpleasantness occurs have all the emotional impact of a checklist or a call sheet that simply says whether an actor will or won't be needed the next day. Whether the downplaying of the formidable cast's charismatic energies is an intentional downplaying of the potential risk to the characters that they play, whether it's a matter of not actually allowing viewers to get too attached to characters or actors, not allowing viewers to be (laughs) bummed out by bad news, but rather breezing past it in a spirit of fealty not to these characters or performers, but to the franchise, is the kind of corporate Kremlinology that would rightly take the place of criticism in assessing the substance and tone of the movie. By the yeah, time I get to that, that's the end one of that sentence, sentence. That's one sentence. By the time I get to the end of it, I have no idea what he's saying. Well, I can tell you what he's saying. And that is, he doesn't know what kind of movie he's watching. <laughs> because if he's never seen a war film... I would expect he has to have seen at least one. One would think so, but he also apparently did not watch the trailers for any of these films. He may have been the only person on the planet to go into this film, based on his review, not knowing what the film was about. I mean, he does describe the story in sort of accurate terms. I mean, he really... Well, actually, no, because we have a couple things that are not... We can go back to that first inevitable happy ending. Now, there's a spoiler for the film for those of you who haven't seen it. Yeah. Every character in it, with the exception of the folks who show up in Star Wars, die. Okay? Mm -hmm. Nobody lives. Right. Happy is a relative term. Yes, they did did get the plans out, but they all die. They're dead. I mean, if if if, if death is something you enjoy... Then perhaps you might view this as a happy thing, but it's not a Star Wars horror film. Uh, I mean, uh, just, but then you get no. You're making a face. Well, I'm 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 skipping ahead because you know we're talking about how dark the movie is, mm-hmm. and he gets into the cinematography being dark. Yeah, uh, again, I'm not sure what movie he saw because it's not dark. It's a very well lit film. Maybe the bulb wasn't working on the projector. It's entirely possible he had a bad screening. I mean, it could be uh, that. Probably may actually be a good explanation for his review. Yeah, because maybe he only saw maybe a third of it. Maybe. (laughs) To the producer's credit, Rogue One offers an international cast that, along with Felicity Jones, Forrest Whitaker, Mads Mikkelsen, features Diego Luna as the rebel Captain Cassian Andor, who is Jin's main cohort. Riz Ahmed as the band's intrepid pilot, and Donnie Yen as a blind martial arts spiritualist. 
but it seems as if the condition for assembling this diverse group is not letting them say or do anything of note, anything of any individual distinction, anything of any free-floating or idiosyncratic implication. There's none of the shit. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Here we go. No. Here we go. There's none of the Shakespearean space politics, enticingly florid dialogue, or experiential thrills of the best of George Lucas's Star Wars entries, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. He lost me right there. I mean, I read the rest of the review, but as soon as he put that out there, I'm done. Actually, he lost me at Shakespearean. Well, yeah. I mean, okay, so I love the Star Wars films, <laughs> all right? I even I can even pick out pieces of the prequels that I can I can enjoy. Mm-hmm. They're they're minutes here and there. They're not, yeah, they're yeah, the but there are moments. Yeah. There are moments in the prequels to enjoy. But it's not Shakespearean. And yeah, I Okay. I, it, it's and it's not meant never, to be. It's never meant to be. It's it not meant to be never Shakespearean. Been, never been Shakespearean. But leaving, was, this was this was Saturday morning serial. But fair. leaving aside the intent <clears throat> Once you get into establishing that he's viewing uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith as Shakespearean space politics, I have news. He needs to go back and reread his Shakespeare because there is some fantastic politics in Shakespeare. However, usually it's of the I'm the king and I need to kill my enemies Uh variety or I want to kill the king so I can be the king Mm. variety. Um it's like it's like well what yeah I mean this is we're not talking Richard the third here right now he does now and and that particular comment in the in the review links over to another article from Mr. Brody uh-huh the headline what the seven Star Wars films reveal about George Lucas uh-huh and I'm not going to get into all of it but <coughs> this is the article in which he basically says George Lucas is a genius for the politics of the prequels. Uh huh. Brilliant in his filmmaking. All right. Um, because <clears> hmm. <throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Lucas's great achievement isn't the conception of the Star Wars saga, the inauguration of the franchise, or his consignment of it to Disney for cloning ad infinitum. Ad infinitum. Ad infinitum. infinitum. Those are for the movie books, for the pundits who reduce movies to such sociological oxymorons as collective imagination, the cultural counterparts to industry analysts who talk only about box office. What endures for the critics and their lay associates, mm-hmm. yes, because we're smarter than you, for whatever, who live for the beauty and the pleasure of movies, because mm-hmm. we appreciate movies more than you do, mm-hmm. you low-brow Neanderthal. <laughs> what endures for the critics and their lay associates is Lucas directing. Of two films, Attack of the Clones and especially Revenge of the Sith. If Lucas had done nothing else in his life, which he kind of hasn't, he'd have an honored place in my personal pantheon for that work. Now, let me interject here mm-hmm. that in Mr. Brody's bio, mm-hmm. his little Mr. You know, Richard Brody started working with the New Yorker in 1999. Sure, uh-huh. 
He's a big fan of Francois Truffaut. Sure. Jean-Luc Godard. Jean-Luc Godard. That tells me so much. Well, right okay. there. <clears throat> it does. And and not in I like I like Jean-Luc Godard films. I like uh, uh Francois Truffaut films. However, George um, Lucas is not Truffaut. No, he's not. And if you are going to go to a Lucas film, you're looking. You know, I mean, you're looking. George Lucas, Harrison Ford said it best. Something along the lines of, you know, nobody can say this. Uh huh. Yeah. Dot dot dot. We try and keep the try and keep the swearing to a minimum on this show. Right. Um. And there's a reason that George Lucas writes crappy dialogue. He really does. He's a great story guy. He really is a fantastic oh, yeah. story idea guy. Yeah. Um, and I think that if, <coughs> if they're the, one of the lasting legacies I think Lucas will always have going, you know, wait, is that he came up with some of the best stories. Um, he's a concept guy. He's a concept. And he's of, of a generation. Yeah. He is, you know, he and Spielberg are behind Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones was a George Lucas idea. Well, and Lucas came up with that with Philip Kaufman. Yeah, was oh, the yeah, original yeah. thing. So, so. I mean, these are he's he's a fantastic idea guy, but he's a terrible dialogue guy. Now, this article is written. In no offense, Jan- George. This was this was written January sixth of last year. Mm-hmm. Now, right after he says Lucas is a genius director for uh-huh, these two sure. movies, he says that, and then he says. It's easy for me to say so because I only just saw those films now after a few days of not quite binge watching of the Blu-ray set of the series. I'm nearly a Star Wars newbie. Prior to viewing The Force Awakens, I had seen the first film in the series, the one belatedly renamed A New Hope from 1977, sometime in the 1980s mm-hmm. and none of the others. Mm-hmm. That's because I was utterly underwhelmed by A New Hope, impressed solely by the world-making of the script, the delivery of a ready-made but minor mythology, but neither moved nor fascinated nor at all delighted by the filmmaking. Rather, I was shocked. Now, wait a minute. This is the guy who said that George Lucas is a genius director, Mm -hmm. and he was not impressed with the movie that George Lucas directed. Right, yeah. All right. Rather, I was shocked that the director of American Graffiti could have constrained himself to create such a turgid, stilted, flat, and textureless movie. I wasn't working as a film critic or journalist at the time or when any of the subsequent five films came out. I went to the movies guided solely by pleasure, even curiosity, and nothing in the viewing of A New Hope induced me to catch up with the then-recent releases of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, nor to follow along with the prequels. I was wrong not to watch. That's the first thing he said that actually re- and ag- redeems him a little bit. And but. again, okay, you know, it's it's okay to not like something. It really, really is. And it's okay for a reviewer to give a bad review to a film that you like. Uh-huh. Uh, we have more than once championed a film called John Carter. Yes. Which, depending on the reviewer, did not get great reviews. Right. But um, we will... There are there are reviews that were written for that that I disagreed with that does not inspire this level of what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Because this is someone, no offense to this guy. I mean, honestly, I, I truly, I would imagine that a conversation with Richard Brody could be very, very entertaining in person. I would expect because so, he, yes. he, he, we, he and I could talk French films and probably have a really great discussion. 
But I think we'd have a and hard... use lots of big words when you do it. We could, because I every now and again I like using a big word because uh, <laughs> it's appropriate. But if you are, if you don't know the kind of film you're watching, if you don't know the kind of film you're meant to be reviewing, mm-hmm. if you go in expecting Star Wars to be Shakespeare, if you expect it to be, you know. Um, well, Truffaut, Truffaut or, or, or Goddard or, or, you know, if you're going uh, Scorsese or I mean, well, you're, you're, even even then, things. if you're going to uh, if you're going to be any kind of a film buff, whether you're mm-hmm. a journalist or, you know, a film history student or whatever, knowing the history of film, he should be able to recognize Star Wars for what it is. It's sure. George Lucas didn't get the rights to Flash Gordon. Yeah. This is the Saturday morning matinee serials. Mm-hmm. And and oh, okay, now I know where I am. And and Brody's headspace apparently doesn't allow for that. Well what confuses me here is that I would I'm surprised that any film critic doesn't understand what happened in terms of the nineteen seventies, early eighties. The 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 shift in what was going on in film. Mm-hmm. Science fiction had been a, the B-movie science fiction film um, had been a staple in the theaters. Right. Um, and, and by the way, this is this is my chance to put in a plug. We yeah. have a new podcast starting yes. called The Bomb Shelter mm-hmm. where Jay McDowell and um, Kevin Trum are going to actually be talking about those very types right. of films. And these are the films that they, they, were, they were very, very popular but they were not doing anything particularly groundbreaking but they were also dying on the vine. This is something that this is a genre that wasn't doing particularly well. Right. Um, Two thousand and one comes out, and it came out at the right time to have that sort of psychedelic headspace trippy thing. And there were some folks who were going to see it for that. There were some folks who were going to see it for that it's intellectual science fiction. And to some degree, it helped revive science fiction and cinema. But it only went so far. Star Wars comes out, and it basically revitalizes. Popular science fiction entertainment for the masses. Yes. It changed the way we were looking at big screen science fiction. It was not expected to succeed. Nobody saw the success it was going to have. Well, not only that, but it changed the landscape of everything having to do with Hollywood. It wasn't just science fiction. It was the the entire filmmaking process got changed Mm -hmm. after that. And it becomes something that that it it has a place... You don't have to like Star Wars to recognize the impact it had on the industry and popular culture. Right. And Richard Brody, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to grasp that this happened. And that concerns me as a critic because you should at least know that this stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Whether you like a genre or not. And he does not have to like science fiction. I don't know if he does. He might like other science fiction. Who knows? Um, I don't, he, may not, he doesn't have to like Star Wars. That's not necessary as a critic. Right. But you have to know what you're talking about. And he seems... He may be incredibly. No, I have not. I've, I've not read a lot uh, any of his other stuff. I'm perfectly, perfectly honest. I haven't read. I haven't read reviews of any of his other other films. But in terms of what he knows about the film that he's reviewing here, about the films that he's reviewing, about the Star Wars itself, he's woefully uninformed about the about the topic he's talking about. Well, not only that, but the the soundtrack, the the score, John Williams' score. He mm-hmm. goes after that as well, and. 
Star Wars was one of those films, along with Jaws and mm-hmm. Close Encounters and you know, the, the John Williams sure. score, uh-huh. that actually brought back orchestral scores to the movies. Mm-hmm. Because before then, you know, you're using just a bunch of songs. You know, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head in, in uh, Butch and Sundance. Right. You know, those kind of things. And he sits here and says, um, hearing Williams' compositions for Star Wars is like being ordered loudly and aggressively to feel, and to feel one thing. It sounds calculated to bludgeon a viewer into submission, to create a cowed unanimity of simple and narrow emotions that are the antithesis of imagination and fantasy. He's saying that about John Williams. Well, score. and again, you don't have to like anything. As, and as a, critic, as a critic, often your job is to be the antagonist. Because you're, and, and that's part of, that's okay. You don't have to like stuff, but you have to know what you're talking about. And again, if you don't know that in 1977, John Williams' Star Wars score was again something that had a real impact on how scores are being done. If you yeah. don't know the context, 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 historical context, context of the film, you know, um, cultural context. Cultural context. If you don't know that stuff, why is he even reviewing the movie then? That's the question I have, is the New Yorker, I'm sure, has more than one person who's capable of doing a movie review. I know they've had other reviewers aside from him over over time. Right. Don't, don't put this guy in the position of having to talk about something he doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't volunteer to be the person who's going to go off and, or at least flat out say, you know what? I don't know anything about this. I didn't like it. Here's why I didn't like it. Yeah. That's fine. Again, you don't have to like it. But the other thing is that his 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 writing is so pretentious and it's, so over the top bombastic in its nature. Well, I think that anytime you set yourself up to have the run on sentence like that uh, where you just have to you, you can't find a place to put the period. Uh-huh. Um that doesn't help. And and look, um I I can I can write just as florid as anybody. Yeah. Uh, um, there have been there have been times that I've I've gone back and I've read part of a review I've written and went no I can't do that that's terrible, um, but um, it's just he's the wrong guy to I'm sorry he's he's the wrong guy yeah. to write this review and and quite frankly um, if I the reaction to this pretty much across I don't know anybody who's defending it yeah. Now, speaking of putting a period on it, yeah. the sentences, we are at the end. Do we want to continue with a part two next week? I think we can. We can talk about, uh, we can talk about a lot of things with this. Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Leave us a comment on social media. Part two next week. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio.